Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I are amazed at how how much devotionals can make such a difference in our in our walk. And if you've got a couple of good devotionals in your library, you know how important they are to your faith journey. And I'm so glad uh, because we have so many lives of life's questions, and our our emotions are just are they're not new to God. So if you're feeling exhausted or worried or lonely or you're just facing so many of life's difficult uh, challenges, The Power of Hope is a book you're going to want in your library. I'm so glad to have Jack Countryman as my guest on the program. He is uh, not only vice president and publisher emeritus at Thomas Nelson Publishers, but he is the author of the new book, The Power of Hope. Jack, nice to have you on the show. Well, it's just great to be with you today, Bill. Yeah, now you've written a lot of devotionals, and I I keep saying people love their devotionals. It's like they love their Bible, they love it open, but they love right next to it their devotionals. So you've written a lot of them. Uh, Why don't you explain why you find them important and how they're helpful? Well, first of all, a devotional draws you into the Word of God and opens up the pathways of so many different subjects. And also... It helps you find a a way for your own life to be affected by the Word of God and how you can be changed for His glory and also how you can understand fully more what the Bible has to say for your life. Mm -hmm. So, Jack, I would love to just get into your book a little bit and talk about some of them. Like, for example, uh, number five is the hope God's children have, and this is from from John. Would you share a little bit about that? Well, the hope God has for us is fantastic. And, uh, you know, uh, I am fully aware of all the things that people are wondering about and things that they want to have changed and things they want to do. And where John speaks about the hope God's children have, he says, God, John was a disciple of Jesus, one of the 12. He and his brothers, James, were Zebedee's sons, but the Lord had nicknamed the sons of thunder Mm. because he earned the name when the Samaritan village refused to accept Jesus and the two offered to call down the, uh, the thunder on them. So, John was a faithful, and John was a favorite, because John was a faithful servant of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So when we go to, to a, a devotional like yours on hope, and, and they always, in my opinion, whenever we have a passage or a part of Scripture that talks about hope, it is a little brick that helps build our faith, Um and I would love, if you would, Jack, let's talk about some more passages from your book, The Power of Hope, 
Um, l- let's talk about, like, for example, um, this in, in uh, number 10, the steadfast hope. And then we get we learn about that from Paul. Well, Paul in steadfast hope. You know, Paul, let's talk about Paul for a moment. Paul was a really a, someone who began by really talking about the Christians, crucifying and really working against the Christians, mm-hmm. where Jesus had to call him down and say, Paul, what are you doing to me? And he was then turned into a pillar for Christ. And Paul was the person who wrote 13 epistles. He became a man who was really wonderful. And, uh, you know, Paul had literally seen the light, the truth, and committed his life to the risen Lord and served God as a church founder, a pastor, a teacher, and a writer. He was just a fantastic guy who really did a lot of things that uh, are, are still wondered about, read about, and thought about through life. So good. All right, Jack, let's keep chatting about uh, devotions from your book, The Power of Hope, 100 Devotions to Build Your Faith. I'm very intrigued with number 16, hoping in the Holy Spirit's work. Well, in, uh, in the 16th one, it is really... Uh, hoping in the Holy Spirit's work. Well, Paul wrote about that, where he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So Paul was someone who was getting through the same process of causing more like Jesus. And as we go through life and as we follow the pathway that such as Paul did, our lives will become more like the Lord and we will become what the Lord wants us to be. I wrote these devotions because I wanted people to understand exactly about the people of the Bible. You know, there are 150 references of hope in the Bible. And I chose 56 characters to emphasize the power of hope, and we need to bring in light and all it did to the people. I chose 100 of them because I wanted to let people understand that God really demonstrates the power of hope to his followers in the Word of God. I love that, Jack. Jack Countryman is my guest. Uh, Jack, I'd be curious about your journey through your your faith, your, your, your decades of following the Lord, and how hope has arisen to the top of something that you wanted to write about. And I know, did you have a um, a, a personal uh, desire to, to understand more about hope? Did you have people in your life that needed hope and you wanted to help them? Where was the uh, the uh, the origin of this uh, desire to write on hope? Well, in today's world, 
there are so many problems of COVID and the pandemic and people losing jobs. And just hope was just something that I felt in my heart that people need to understand that God loves them and cares for them and wants to give them all the hope that they can. So that's why I chose, you know, the, the, these hundred different subjects on hope so that they would understand that if they turn their lives over to the Father, if they just walk the walk, that he will bless them and he will give them the peace to pass us all understanding and they can live a life that is what God wants them to be. I was always interested in Noah. <laughs> you know, Noah was 500 years old when his uh, Jeff, Ham, and, and Japheth were born. <laughs> you know, he yeah. was 600 years, 500 years old, and yeah. he's having children. And he was 600 years old when they went in the ark. That means the kids weren't kids anymore. They were 100 years old. Right. But Noah was obedient. He was obedient to the end. He took him 50 to 75 years to build that ark, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 25 feet deep. Took him 400 and, and 50 years to do all that. And it, it, so the, I just find him pretty fascinating that he never, never wavered. He was always faithful. And he always was the man that God wanted him to be. Jack, when I think of the obedience of, of Noah, and I, you know, you put it in that place where he's 500 years old when he starts this project, and you think of the, the daunting task of building an ark of that magnitude, and how does that get pulled off? And it does it through, like you say, obedience and hope. Because without it, I don't think that would have happened. Oh, no. I mean, he was a man who was obedient to the Lord to a fault, and he remained obedient. He had the patience, I mean, to work at something for 40 to 50 years and right. just keep going. I mean, that's, I, I just can't understand that. Yeah, I mean, if you were 500 years old, would you even want to go out back and play catch with the grandkids, you know, at 500? So now you're starting this project of building an ark. Yes, and so it's <laughs> it's really uh, a thrilling, and uh, you know, and as I think about Peter and the the problems Peter had in life, and how how he rejected the Lord when the Lord was being ready to be uh, captured, and how he denied the Lord three times, mm -hmm. but he came back. And uh, when the Lord forgave him after the resurrection, the Lord forgave him, and he became a evangelist to end all evangelists. Mm -hmm. So we see demonstrations where people make mistakes, people fail, but God brings them back. God forgives, and God opens up their lives to allow them to become all they've been called to be. And so it's just... Uh, I, I just found this interesting. You know, in Hebrews ten twenty three, it said, Let us seal seals and hold tightly the compassion of our hope without wavering. 
For he who promised is reliable and trustworthy and faithful to his word. Mm. That's fantastic. Let me take a little break. Jack Countryman is my guest. He's written a devotional called The Power of Hope, 100 Devotions to Build Your Faith. We'll be right back. Monday, talking to Jack Countryman. He's written a book called The Power of Hope, 100 Devotions to Build Your Faith. And it's a uh, fascinating book that he's uh, put together that if you want to have a book devotion by your Bible as you study God's Word throughout the day and throughout the week, this is a nice little devotional to have alongside. Um, Jack, I'd love for you to talk about uh, the Number 28 in your book, which says, follow me, and it's the, the fisherman. Well, let me uh, get that out here. I love I love when Jesus is invitational. I, I, I love when he says, follow me. I mean, I, there are so many times in Scripture that Jesus is so wonderfully invitational that um, well, you've I got think that. that... Pardon? I say you you have that absolutely right, and uh, you know uh, this book is filled with various situations where you can apply them to your life. It uh, as I wrote with the four fishermen, what kind of person could compel someone allegiance with two simple words? What kind of personality? could prompt men to leave behind their livelihood and accept the invitation. When we think about when he said, follow me, and they did so immediately, Mm -hmm. that my mind. I just, uh, you know, they've heard about the rabbi's teaching, and, and, but just to drop everything and turn around and, Follow the Lord and become faithful to Him is uh, that's really something. Yeah, I agree, and I I love the the number twenty nine where you talk about it is written because you know if we talk about practical application. I I love this illustration of Jesus being uh, tempted in the wilderness after uh, this period of time, and he he responds to the enemy with it is written. So he he always leads with his thinking, which I love. He leads with the Word of God, not his emotions. Well, he gives us such an example there. Because Satan challenged Jesus uh, three times, and he, uh, you know, he responded with, get thee behind me, Satan. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's just uh, an interesting, and uh, I, I find this story about Jesus in the wilderness and inspiration to each of us if we would just follow that path ourselves. Uh, I agree. All right, this is one that I would love for you to talk about because I think this is more and more what people uh, are, are suffering with 
uh, right now, and that is uh, trusting God to provide. Well, that, of course, is Paul. Yes. And, uh, Paul was so, so after, after he, Paul had his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, he became a totally sold-out kind of person. And, uh, you know, Jesus is the author and sustainer of life. Uh, he keeps our lungs breathing, our hearts beating, and provides us with everything. And Paul pointed out another thing we can't do without in Jesus. We cannot be content without him. And so this book is so filled with things that point us toward being a Christian, point us toward living the life of these 56 different people that are in this book, and helps us to understand what the calling of Jesus is on our life. Jesus wants to have a personal relationship with each and every one of us. And he has a plan for each and every one of us. If we'll just surrender our lives to him and let him live in the center of our lives and bless us like he, so we can bless others, mm-hmm. it's such an important thing, I think, and hopefully, I touch on the things that will draw people in and let them touch their life and change their lives for God's glory. Mm-hmm. My guest is Jack Countryman. He's written a book called The Power of Hope, 100 Devotions to Build Your Faith. Jack, I know a lot of people have prayers that they're hoping get answered exactly the way they have petitioned God uh, with them. So maybe you could talk about the, you know, the hope of answered prayer. That's number 61 in your book. Well, answered prayer is is the thing that we're all are hoping for. And uh, in that book, I did, I said, the hope of answered prayer, and that was Rhoda. Mm-hmm. In this, in this, as the, the, at the same time, the church had gathered and asked God to have mercy on their imprisoned leader, despite their earnest prayers, Peter's Morning execution seemed inevitable. Hmm. A knock on the door interrupted their prayers, recognizing Peter's voice when he was and went to answer it. Rhoda immediately ran to tell the people that God had delivered Peter. And prayer is powerful. God hears and answers all of our prayers. When we come to God, with a, a, a heart of, of uh, a heart that is full of repentance and a heart that comes to the Lord wanting to worship him and a heart that feels that they cannot get on life without him, the Lord will come into your life change your life, and have you be the person that God wants you to be. Have you ever thought about the person God wants you to be? God wants you to be faithful. God wants you to be obedient. God wants you to love him with all of your heart, your soul, and your might. And when we do, 
He fills us with his glory. He fills us completely, and we will become the people he wants us to be if we'll just give him the chance and let ourselves get out of the way so he can fill us with his love, mercy, and grace. Mm, That's so good. Jack, talk, if you would, a little bit about uh, number 68 in your devotional, The Power of Hope, 100 Devotions to Build Your Faith, and that's Hope for Life's Fires, of which nowadays there seems to be many. Well, (laughs) life is filled full of strife, and, uh, you know, it it says there are fires in our life, and I wrote, in the world, you'll have tribulation, said Jesus. Jesus didn't offer any exceptions in the fine print. Tribulation, pain, loss, grief, and frustration, betrayal, unfairness, injustice, disease is unavoidable. Mm-hmm. We all have problems in life, but he is there to carry us when we can't carry ourselves. And he is there that, uh, that you know, Paul learned about the sufficiency of God's grace. And Peter experienced the redemption of the grace of Jesus. That's why these people that I've put in this book are all people that experienced a, a relationship with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And as they had a relationship with the Lord, we can have that same relationship. Amen. And Jack, so, we just have... Oh, go ahead. And so it is important that we understand what these characters are about and what they experienced as they came in contact with Jesus. Mm-hmm. We only have a minute left. Maybe we could do number 77, saving the best for last, living with purpose. And that would be Jesus. Well, Jesus, of course, is the answer to everything. And, uh, you know, hoping in Jesus' return. You know, I I believe that it's just so important that living with purpose is something that we all want in our lives to make a a difference. We all want to live with purpose. In today's passage, Jesus clearly stated our ultimate purpose is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's what God wants us to do to every creature. Mm -hmm. And our almighty God is not willing that we should perish, but that we should all come to repentance. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, we would be, of course, everything that God wants us to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Jack, yeah, it's, I, it's been a delight. It's been a delight having you on. I so appreciate uh, you coming on the show, and I think your book uh, is is uh, got a lot of great wisdom in it. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. It's been my privilege. Thank you so much, Jack Countryman's been my guest. The Power of Hope: Hundred Devotions to Build Your Faith. After a short break, we'll be back with Chris Palmer. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon 
doesn't want to learn a little Greek on Monday? I do, and I'm always glad to have Reverend Chris Palmer on. He's the founder and pastor of Light of Today Church in Novi, Michigan, and I'm just on his uh, webpage right now. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Bill, it's good to be with you again, and uh, hey, it's springtime, and I hope it's warm where you're at. It is. It's nice, and I'm I'm looking at I'm at your webpage, looking at your picture, going, wait a minute, there's no gray hair anywhere. What's up with that? <laughs> Well, I keep that one up because since that picture, I've gotten a few grays here and there. So I have to, I have to milk that one until it turns all okay, of the Okay, good. Good. Yeah. And you're uh, you're currently working on your PhD and uh, yeah. particularly the Book of Revelation. So this is going to be a, a great, uh, great, great study for you. Yeah, it's been uh, probably I've been doing it four years now, and it's gone. The time has gone by quick. So imagine imagine studying something for every day for four years and uh, seeing where it takes you. So I think I'm getting to the end. About this time next year, we'll be we'll be through it. So I'll be happy. That'll be fantastic. So we're going to talk a little bit today about uh, what the Book of Revelation and and some of the yeah. Greek understandings of it. So let's get to it. One of the biggest questions that uh, you get to in scholarship with the book of Revelation when you're able to, you know, people oftentimes think, hey, let's, this is a countdown to doomsday, a countdown to Armageddon, uh, you know, and the kind of issues that, that this creates is things about the rapture and things about when, when do we think Jesus is coming, these types of things. And I really don't venture into any of that in my thesis um, because I want to offer uh, – a way of reading it that is that maybe looks at it a little bit differently, more sort of how the historical church has looked at the book of Revelation throughout the years, when most of our understanding of the book of Revelation, at least when you talk to certain people, um, comes from the last 100 years, I'd say. And you start to look mm-hmm. back towards history, you begin to see, hey, they were looking at this thing a little bit differently. When you get into the grammatical features of Revelation, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, how is this book structured? Because the book of Revelation being divinely inspired from the Holy Spirit also has a literary structure. It is a piece of literature, divinely inspired. And it does have a structure to it. And the way you can tell that is because there are patterns that begin to develop. And, and you look at these patterns and say, hey, these are, these are unique patterns. Something's taking place. And so most scholarship that I've read would argue that the structure of the book of Revelation, when you take that 40,000-foot bird's eye view over it, you begin to see it's probably something significant is going on with the Greek phrase and pneumati, which means in the spirit. And there's this term and pneumati, it's the apostle John's uh, coinage. He uses it quite often. He uses it very specifically. Um, he's not just throwing words around. I mean, we could say that term a lot in Christianity today, in the spirit, in the spirit, in the spirit. And I think that has become so cliche that we really don't know what we mean when we say in the spirit, it's just sort of this, um, I don't know, uh, esoteric experience. Everything's in the spirit. You're feeling good. You're in a happy mood. I'm in the spirit. You know, you have too much coffee. You're in the spirit. What does it really mean? But there's something John means very significant, uh, something about being in the spirit. He uses it four times in Revelation. And the first time we see him use it, he says he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he's talking about his time on Patmos as a political prisoner. And then he uses it again in chapter 4, verse 2, when he says that he's in the Spirit. He's, he is now standing before the throne of God, not physically, but he's having this vision experience before the throne of God. But he doesn't use it again until chapter 17, and verse 3, where he's carried away into the wilderness um, 
and he says he's in the spirit. And then there's another shift in chapter 21, verse 10, where he says he's in the spirit. Now he's standing and seeing a great mountain. So theologians have asked themselves, what's really going on here? I think there's something that is significant in a pattern lends itself to one of the main themes in Revelation, that is overcoming in a time of suffering and in a time of sorrow or being someone who follows Christ. My definition of overcoming in the book of Revelation isn't sort of an imperialistic type overcoming using bombs and nukes and military power the way that Rome would have at that time, or not bombs with the sword. And sometimes we look at it imperialistically as as um, Americans and say, yeah, over to, uh, overcoming might mean military might, or, you know, we're informed by the movie Rocky. Overcoming means knocking out the, 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 the opponent. But I don't think that's, that's John's idea. I think he's more subversive than that. I think what John means is that it means following Christ. And when you look at these um, these terminologies in the Spirit, you'll see the first mention of it is on Patmos. It's a place of suffering. And here John is in a, in a place of suffering, but he's in the Spirit. And in the second place, you see that he shifts out of that place of suffering. He's standing before the throne of God, which is the exact opposite of a place of suffering. It's actually a place of triumph, the place where um, he sees God who is is overlooking the world. And seeing what is taking place in the world, and he's he sees the rejoicing and the singing and the worship that takes place before the throne. So, which is the exact opposite of suffering. But then you see in chapter seventeen three, he's in the wilderness. The wilderness typically always meant a barren place, and in that place or in that wilderness, um, John later sees Babylon come up, and he sees his destruction. And even in destruction, even though the world, uh, the, the people rejoice, the world is sorrowful because it's, it's a lot of destruction that takes place. So he's back to this place of suffering, seeing suffering take place, whether it's vindicated or not. And then you see in chapter 21:10, John then shifts again to the mountain of God, where he, he's no longer in this place of suffering. He sees, he sees the triumph of God, where God is making all things beautiful once again, and he's restoring creation, and, and it enters in the new heavens. And I think you see a pattern here of suffering and overcoming, suffering and overcoming until ultimate ultimate triumph. And I, that, I think, is very important and central to us as Christians, because that's sort of what life is, if you think about it. I mean, life, you look at it a lot of different ways. One of the ways you can look at it is it is, you know, a pattern of times of suffering and times of sorrow. I mean, Dickens gets this right uh, when he talks about A Tale of Two Cities. He says, you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And I think that often explains the Christianity, the paradox of being a Christian, is that in, in times that are so bad sometimes, there's also rejoicing and there's hope. And so you see this suffering, but yet before the throne of God. Things are taking place that are destructive, but yet Revelation is so full of worship, and it's so full of the presence of God, and it's so full of angels rejoicing. And it's, you have this mix in there that becomes uniquely disorienting at times. And you're like, how can there be so much tragedy and sorrow? But yet at the same time, there's so much worship. And I think that's really what's mysterious and the mystique behind the book of Revelation is that even in the worst of times, it seems like there's the best of times. And even though there is great suffering that takes place, I think that there is, there's the hope that Christians maintain. I mean, it's similar to what the apostle Paul says in first Thessalonians chapter four, when he says, we're not those that, we're not those that suffer as having no hope. I mean, yes, we do suffer, but what's different about our suffering is the fact that we hope for the best and we remain hopeful, and the fact that 
God is reconciling the world unto himself. He is bringing forth his human flourishing. He is taking, we take our requests to God with everything that's broken in our life, and he's somehow mysteriously and unknowingly to us making those things beautiful in his time. And that gives us a, a reason to really rejoice. And I think that's what the narrative is doing. I think this pattern, this Enumati pattern, um, is in the spirit, speaks to us that the way that we maintain our hope and the way that we maintain our joy in times of crisis, in times of sorrow, whether we're suffering or watching others suffer and suffer because they're suffering, has to do with the power of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit has been given to us. And, and that's just a product of the Spirit that in the worst of times, somehow we find the best of things. Chris, I, I appreciate the wisdom on all this. And I, I know that we have to hold that tension in our in our hearts in our heads that we've got suffering on some at some level and then we also have incredible joy that can't be taken away from us on the other side and just as believers i think we need to walk in that understanding that that we hold that conflict all the time and it's always the suffering and the victory that we're talking about now i also want to get back to uh in the spirit i always think of that as just a, a you know a metaphor for practical daily living and that if we are united and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is in us, we, we, we walk in victory. Our Christian life is a journey, but uh, we, we're walking in victory. Yeah, I think this, the, the term spirit is, in one sense, it's an otherworldly experience. You know, it's not something that is, we might apply our language today and say it's not something that's natural. I mean, that's the, the context I grew up in, they would say that. You know, it's not of the natural, it's of the supernatural. I'm fine with that language um, because it, it's trying to get at, there is something that's taking place that's that's numinous. It's the divine, it's the divine intervention of a holy God that is supplying our life with his very presence in down inside of us. It's the transformative presence. I also, I also think that in John's case, it was it was a sovereign act of God on his behalf to, to bring him into a place where He's observing something, you know, in, 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 in the sense that John is using in the Spirit. He's observing the world in a way that he's observing a reality that he hasn't seen before. And I think that goes hand in glove with what you're saying, Bill, is that in, in being in the Spirit, um, part of that is, is the shift in our perspective that we have. I mean, it's so easy to, to look at the tragedies that are taking place in life and, and look at it from the perspective of whatever news you're inclined to look at or what the pundits are saying. But but John's in the spirit experiences otherworldly that raises him or brings him to a, a new place of observance, a way to look at things a little bit differently. And I think when we're in the spirit, we begin to see things differently. We start to look at life a little bit differently. And the way John sees it is with a hopeful outlook and with a hopeful perspective on things. And that's very important. And I do think that when you have that fullness of the spirit that you're talking about, it creates a different way of looking at things that is surprisingly and mysteriously hopeful to the people around you. I mean, one of the things that I'm doing in my thesis is I'm, I'm engaging um, how Christians look at suffering and tragedy to, say, some of the other philosophers that are in the world, somebody like a Camus or a Schopenhauer or somebody that is just a, a, a nihilist like uh, Nietzsche who just doesn't see a reason for living anymore. He just doesn't – he just – he observes the world. He takes it kind of for what is it face value, and he just kind of gives up and says it's not worth living. Suicide is the best option. And I, I think that we have in our society today a lot of nihilists, people that just don't think life's worth living. 
because of the tragedy and the suffering and Schopenhauer, he felt the same way. Um, a chemist thinks like, hey, you know what? Life's, the only thing worth living is making your own meaning because life has no meaning. And the Christians would look at this completely differently. And the Christians would say, hey, no, there's reason to hope. There's reason to want to stick around and live this life because as much suffering as we have in this life, as much personal suffering as we have, as many horrendous evils have taken place that we don't know how to explain, we can simply accept the fact that we don't. there's something we don't understand uh, in this life. There's something we don't understand about God and His ways. There's something we don't understand about the way the world is. But we, we can hope and stick around to see that as we live, God is making things beautiful. He, there is there is an end to this story, and we're part of that. And God's transcendence uh, includes our prayers in, in God's transcendent provision for our lives, and he's bringing that about. And we get to be a part of that and be a part of the story of how God has taken a broken creation through sin and is restoring it. I think that's beautiful, and that's worth singing about and worth rejoicing about. Oh, I agree. The Reverend Chris Palmer is my guest. He's the founder and pastor of Light of Today Church in Novi, Michigan. He's also the founder of Chris Palmer Ministries and currently serves as a professor at Moody Bible Institute and he's host of the popular podcast Greek for the Week. We'll take a break. Be right back with Chris in just a minute. Chris Palmer, founder and pastor of Light of Today Church in Novi, Michigan, and also uh, he is a, my go-to Greek guy. So as we talk about uh, Revelation today, Chris, and you had, uh, doing your some of your thesis work on how Christians view and uh, deal with suffering differently than non-Christians, uh, I would love for you to say more about that because we're all in a place where we have suffering in front of us. We have difficulties and challenges. And as believers, uh, we should be dealing with it significantly different than the lost of the world do. Yeah, I mean, the whole tension, like you were saying before, is that there is a there is a suffering that's very real. And suffering is, is a, it moves in and out, right? There are times where we're suffering greatly. And there are times where we're suffering less, but we're more or less in this this, this experience, which suffering is very real. I mean, I was reading Ellie Wessel's book uh, last week. Uh, it's called Night. It is his account of he was a Holocaust survivor, just a, a mm-hmm. 15-year-old boy, 15-year-old boy when he was uh, in the Holocaust. I mean, in the, I, I read it in one sitting. I mean, it's that com- compelling. Um, and there's very few movies if alone books I've ever cried in, but there was, there was a few times where I had to really put it aside um, and, and really take in what I was reading. Um, and actually, I can say this, that that I went to bed that night and the book haunted me. Um, and it made me have to really evaluate my understanding of suffering because compared to him, I haven't suffered at all. And I don't think I may ever suffer that way. Um, I don't think any of us do. I mean, it just was a real eye-opening. So I had to really think through, am I, am I even qualified to, to speak on these on these subjects? Because 
And that's one of the difficult things is when you're talking about a subject like suffering, um, to not oversimplify and not over truncate it and not try to speak the collective whole, especially when you haven't been through suffering. But again, on the other side, that doesn't make your suffering any less real because you haven't suffered to the extent that a guy like Ellie Wessel has suffered, but you have gone through suffering. I mean, we've all gone through heartbreak. We've all gone through uh, losing somebody we love. We've gone through, whether it be a death or a breakup, um, we've gone through traumatic turmoils, mental turmoil, whatever it may be. Uh, people lost people during COVID pandemic. So, so I think the scripture, the scripture speaks to all of us, no matter what, what area of suffering that we're in, um, and, and gives us reason to hope. And in one particular passage, let's get back to the Greek for a second before we kind of veer off into too much philosophy here. There's a passage in Revelation 18 that I really appreciate, probably more now than ever. And when I was growing up in circles, I always, this is about the destruction of Babylon, I'd always hear, yes, this is the fall of you know, the revised Roman Empire, it's going to be destroyed. And it was kind of like this anticipation of a future reformation of ten kingdoms inside of modern-day Europe, and, and it was going to fall one day, and, and that was going to take place at the at the end of the tribulation. And I think if we can get beyond that reading, we can look at it. There's, there's some takeaways that are applicable right now, because when you read that way, it's kind of like you're holding this off until then, and it all makes sense then. And I don't think that's how the first century understood this. I think when, when you take an examination of it, um, the first, the idea of was a very provocative image because they were the oppressor of God's people for so long that uh, since, the, since the time of the exile, the name Babylon became synonymous with anybody that was persecuting any people of God. So when the Christians were being persecuted, because many of them were former Jews, they, they maintained this Babylon language and applied it towards whoever they saw that were oppressing them at that time. And so the, the imagery was, was very clear that this was the oppressor of God's people. And, and you see that there's this, there's this imagery in chapter 18 where Babylon has fallen. The oppressor of God's people has been broken. And the first few verses, um, an angel sings over Babylon, and, and, and this is in the classic formation of a funeral dirge. And so he's singing this funeral song, this wailing song over them. And there's two responses to the fact that Babylon has been defeated. Number one um, is that the peoples of the earth begin to wail because, because Babylon's gone. But yet the people of God, they begin to rejoice. And I think this kind of shows the defeat of unjust power that had for so long caused so many people to suffer. Um, and you see that to illustrate this in the vision, John says in verse number 24 or 21 here that a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea and said so will babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and it will be found no more now if you think about this we've all thrown a rock into the water and i suspect that every rock that i've ever thrown into a body of water that's deeper than say six to eight feet okay is probably still there and over time the silt continues to bury that rock and it, it only goes down further and so the idea is that when you throw a rock into a water especially a deep abyss you're never going to see it again nobody's ever going to see it. it's never going to see the light of day it just expresses an infinite final um defeat and and this isn't just talking about the babylon back in in daniel's day okay 
it's talking about any wicked power structure that's that's the cause of people suffering. And so if we integrate this into Ellie Wessel's understanding, and I try to be sensitive to him because I don't think this answers the problem of his suffering, but I think it does give us some hope, at least as readers, at least as people reading from an outside perspective, is that governments like Nazi Germany and what they were doing to people have been seen by God. God, ha- God saw that. God sees the oppression that's taking place in South Sudan. He sees the oppression that's taking place here in America. A society that is being built, empires that are being built, uh, economic systems that are being built off the backs of the innocent people where the rich and the powerful benefit off of the uh, manipulation and taking advantage of, of people that are poor. And, and God, he, 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 does, he, he does not stand for that. And ultimately, it doesn't take place right away. And that's the real difficult part, the mysterious part that Eli Wessel, you know, one of the, the most gut-wrenching part of the book um, is when a young boy was hung inside of, I think it was Borna or one of the camps that he was in. And they watched the death of this 12-year-old boy. And um, Ali Wessel says to this 15-year-old, says to the guy next to him, where is God? And the, the guy next to him says, you're looking at him, and he's hanging. In other words, God is, God is dead. He's not here. He's been defeated. Wow. But the Bible gives us a reason to hope otherwise. And the New Testament saints were the victims of brutality. And I think that helps us. To understand that even though the New Testament saints were victims of brutality, there was something within being in the spirit where they were able to say, you know what, Babylon will, like a millstone, be thrown into the waters, never to be seen again. And then after that, what's so significant, and that's 18 in chapter 19, Jesus comes and he wipes away every tear. And so I think that's just really what speaks to the hope that we have, that we're not going to understand it all, but we have reason to hope. So, you know, I'd say to the listener that's listening, you know, if you have a, a mother or father who's in the hospital with cancer and, 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 and they die or you watch them die or and God doesn't seem to be answering your prayer, um, the story's not over. And even if they pass, the story is not over yet. And, and there's more to be written. And I think that's what we have to hold on to as believers, though. Mm-hmm. We always have to not only hold on to the hope that we have because we, we don't always even close understand the big picture that God has before us. Um, so we have to uh, stand strong and be steadfast and and trust God for every day of our lives. Yep. I mean, it's like the apostle. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's like the Apostle Paul said, is that the suffering of this present time is not equal to the glory that shall be revealed. And I, I, there's one verse on suffering that, that I think really encapsulates um what the biblical authors were trying to say, both in the narratives and in the Psalms. Um, you know, I think if you look at Psalms, half of the Psalms are Psalms of rejoicing, um, but half of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. So again, I think that speaks to what I'm trying to say with the book of Revelation is that, you know, half of life seems to be, you know, um, suffering, you know, to some degree. Um, and half a life, or I don't mean like it's evenly divided, but the integration, if you will, the mix of life seems to be there's suffering and joy, there's trial, and there's hope. Um, and what separates my, my whole thesis, my whole argument, the case I'm trying to make and defend is that 
what separates us as believers is is hope number one, but not just hope, not just positivity that things are going to be all right, but the recreation, the promise of God that through Christ He's taking what's broken, He's He's beautifying it in, in all things, um, he's, he's reconciling all things to Himself uh, in His way, and I think the the element of the Spirit in the Book of Revelation is that we don't have any all the answers, and there's something about God that we don't understand in this life. And we don't have to understand it because you never see them trying to make you understand that. There's no real theodicy in the book of Revelation. What there is is just the exhortation. You have the spirit persevere. And I think with that, there's, there's enough. I think we can do it. Mm-hmm. Chris, always nice to have you on the show. Thank you for being here with me today. God bless you, Bill. We'll talk to you soon. It's been great. Thank you so much. Chris Palmer has been my guest. You can go to Light of Today. Dot com to learn more about Chris. Always nice having him on the show. And that's our show for the day. Thank you for spending time with me today. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Christ Jesus our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.